Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, hey, today it's a rangy and fascinating conversation with a titan of the modern mindfulness scene. She's been called the Beyonce of meditation. It's Sharon Salzberg, ladies and gentlemen. We talk about the case for openness versus constriction. What is openness? Why do we want it? And how does one achieve it? She's got a lot of practical tips on that front. We also talk about how not to take so seriously the stories you tell yourself, whether shame is ever useful, how the most powerful tools, like self-compassion, for example, can often seem very, very stupid at first, the importance of having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset, why gratitude gets a bad rap, and the difference between self-centeredness and what she calls healthy pride. Then we get uh, quite personal and talk about a story that has long fascinated me, why did so many Jewish kids from Sharon's generation, the boomers, get interested in meditation. Sharon was part of a whole crew called the Jubus, young Jewish people, mostly from New York, who found their way over to India and other parts of Asia in the 1960s and 70s, learned about Buddhism, and then came home and taught it to so many of us. Without these Jubus, I would never have gotten into the meditation game personally. They have really changed the world, in my opinion, because some of them became teachers like Sharon and uh, Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield. Others became scientists and writers. I'm thinking of people like Richie Davidson and Daniel Goldman, who wrote books and produced studies that really changed the way the world saw meditation and made it accessible to skeptics and others. And Sharon was right there in the thick of it. So she's going to talk about that. And while we're at it, she gets very personal here about a recent and extremely harrowing medical odyssey, the second for her in recent years, and how meditation helped her get through it. If you're unfamiliar with Sharon, just a little background here. She's the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, a renowned meditation retreat center where I do most of my retreats personally. She's written 12 books. Her latest is called Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. 
Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it. But already, I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Sharon Salzberg, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. All right. Well, congratulations on your new book. Let me start with a very big question based on the subtitle. What is openness? Well, the book was born, actually, while I was in lockdown, as so many people were during the pandemic height. And I was watching this show on YouTube called Saturday Night Seder, which was my Seder of the year because I wasn't going anywhere. And it was, I think, one of the first programs created on Zoom, you know, where the writers were never in the same room and people were just contributing. And I found it brilliant and, you know, funny and educational. And in the course of that, I was reminded that the word Egypt is symbolic for a constriction or a narrow place. It means narrow straits. And so taking it totally out of geopolitics, it's a journey from constriction, feeling trapped to openness and expansion. So the word expansion is maybe not so common, but that's what openness was meaning, being able to breathe free, seeing options, feeling creative, not feeling so trapped. And so I embarked on that exploration. Like, when do we feel most constricted, most trapped, most overwhelmed? When do we feel most expansive and open and connected? And and that was really the book. How do you answer that question for yourself? When do you feel most constricted and most open? I think very classically, you know, like I feel most constricted when I'm afraid and not just feeling fear, but when I'm overwhelmed by fear and when I I see no way out. And I've seen through my meditation, often based on the stories I'm telling myself, it's not that the reality of the situation is providing no options. It's like I've shut down. I just see there's no way out. This is it. This is going to define my life. This is who I am. And it's those stories, if I get invested in them, which is a point I keep trying to make in all contexts, that it's not the arising of these things that's necessarily the problem. It's diving into them and taking them to heart. That's much more of the problem. And when I feel most expansive is when I am more abiding or dwelling in that awareness of rather than the state itself, even in the presence of something like fear. It's a little bit like, I think, in psychological terms, when you remember you're an adult now, it's not a question of survival, even though it feels, whatever it is, as primal and urgent as it might have when you were two years old. Now you're an adult and you can sort of let that fear arise and pass and 
hold things in a different perspective. So, and then of course, I would say it's through connection, it's through love of any kind, which might not be like a relationship with somebody, but if I am feeling connected to a neighbor or something like that, then there's just this moment where I don't feel so isolated and like I'm holding it, you know, just me. When you're talking about the states of mind where you feel the most open, free, expansive, you listed two. One was... Awareness. Yes, being aware of whatever's happening in your mind without getting caught up by it. And the other is feeling connected to other people or the world. You didn't use these words, but other words that could be used are mindfulness and compassion. Yeah, indeed. Those are the words. Well, you know, like one of the things I challenged myself with in writing this book was, you know, when do we feel most constricted? Greed, hatred, and delusion in Buddhist terminology. And I tried to think of, you know, kind of more contemporary or immediate ways of describing that. So for hatred, for example, I really focused on self-hatred, which was shame. And that just became, I think, more interesting as a vehicle for understanding the broader context of hatred, you know, in, in that way. Is shame ever useful? Yes. Here, you know, one runs into the problem with language, like, In the Buddhist psychology, also, there's moral shame and moral dread that are talked about, which are more like conscience. These things tend to be specific to something we did or something we didn't do, because that, too, is an action when we hold back from saying or doing something. And feeling the pain of it when it was wrong, when it was hurtful or harmful. And there's a very beautiful line from the Buddha where he said, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another And so it's not puritanical or mean-spirited or self-righteous. It's understanding that when we get reckless, we get overcome, we blow it in some way, then it's painful. And it's born out of some lack of love for ourselves as well. And so we feel that, and it's important to feel that because that's the road to really determining, I don't want to do that again, you know? I want to step up and be more careful And that's different than that more global condemnation of lacerating self-hatred. Like, I am a mess and I always will be, and things could never change, and this is who I really am. And we go on and on and on. It's kind of endless. I think in Western psychology, as I learned, the words are different. Like, they would more use guilt the way we would use remorse in Buddhist psychology, and they would use shame the way we would use guilt. So... It takes some parsing of the language, but conscience is really important and a sense of possibility is really important in terms of one's ethics. And it's very important to recognize what is so rarely recognized, I think, in this world that actions have consequences, that it really matters what we do and what we say, but that sort of wholesale denigration of ourselves, it's just not onward leading in any way. It's so painful that... It's not useful to do one more time. (laughs) So there's a kind of healthy shame that we might consider conscience or wise remorse. And then there's an unhealthy shame that is coiled into self-obsession, kind of. You say in your book, the brain filled with shame, and now you're referring to the unhealthy or unwholesome version of shame, cannot learn. Can you tell us more about that? 
Yeah, I think one of the last gatherings I was with people in the same room teaching was February 2020. And I was in California with a small group of people and the psychologist in the room said that line, that the brain filled with shame cannot learn. And so then I was in lockdown, you know, and was working on the book and I had time to really ponder that and try to think more deeply what it might mean. And and it seems so right that what we're looking for is behavior change. We're looking to seize some sense of possibility, like my life doesn't have to be this crummy or this complicated, you know, like telling a million lies to people or I have all these secrets and it's so burdensome. Like I can't look people in the eye or, or whatever it is that when we realize actions have consequences and we feel those consequences, what are we then going to do? And what's useful to do so that I don't have to come here again in two months and three months and four months as I'm trying to undertake this process of getting more free. It's like, I can't keep doing the same stuff again and again and again and again and not have it be impactful. And so what am I going to do? And what it turns out, and this is very difficult for many of us, is that sitting and stewing and hating yourself and reviling yourself is not actually going to be that helpful. If it were helpful, it would be good because we do it. You know, it's very habituated. And the thing that does make a difference, like self-compassion, seems like one of the stupidest things ever, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Amen. And yet. So, and yet, it seems to be perhaps the most powerful tool for actually learning and making a change and developing a new habit. It's difficult for a lot of people, you know, like I have been so many times met with, that's just laziness, you know, that's just not having any standards of excellence, that's giving in or something like that. But really, I think if we just look at our experience, it changes from being like the stupidest thing ever to like, whoa, that's interesting. That's challenging. It's different. Let me try that. As you've written in a prior book, self-compassion is not letting yourself off the hook. It's holding yourself accountable, but the way you would hold a friend or a child accountable, not doing what most of us do reflexively in this culture, which is self-lacerate over and over and over again ad infinitum. Indeed. It's one of the reasons I think these things are best explored experientially, because it's a little difficult to get just intellectually because it's so different. Okay, so there are a bunch of very practical things you talk about in the book for relating to your own ugliness and specific things we can do to feel more open or expansive every day. But before we dive into that, and I want to go pretty deep, let me just go back up to, to a high level for a second and ask you about some concepts that are pretty important and that you establish early in the book. You talk about a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. Can you explicate that? Yeah, I think in, in mindfulness terms, we would say, let's look for the add-ons to what has arisen. You know, a certain emotion, like when I feel that fear, for example, how do I relate to it? What's my interpretation of it? And if I see it as a kind of irredeemable character flow, which I used to, you know, this is like my inherent weakness. This is going to be here forever. This is who I really am. What would people say if they only knew how afraid I was? And that's kind of that fixed mindset that this is a character trait. This could never change. 
this is the hand I've been dealt. And so this is who I am. Whereas a growth mind state would have a very different interpretation, a very different set of add-ons. Like, this is a painful habit. What are lessons to be learned? You know, are there ways that I can relate to this or approach the situation that's bringing up the fear? That would be different. Maybe I'm not so alone. Is this part of the human condition? Can I find support uh, and understanding in different ways? Is the work of Carol Dweck that set that terminology in my mind of, of fixed mind Satan, growth mind Satan? I just felt like it fit into this mindfulness paradigm very well. Just to restate her core thesis, a fixed mindset is I am this way. These are my factory settings. They're unalterable. A growth mindset is actually what we know from the science is that the brain and the mind are trainable. The body's trainable. Change is possible. And all the evidence suggests that nothing is fixed. I mean, nothing, literally nothing is fixed. Yeah, yeah. So let's get back to practical stuff about what we can do to have this growth mindset, to feel this openness that you've been talking about. One of the many practical techniques that you talk about in this book will be familiar to close listeners of this show. We had a gentleman on the show several months ago who is a teacher to you. His name is Sokni Rinpoche. And he has something called the handshake, which you talk about in your new book. Can you tell us a bit more about what it is and why you find it so helpful? Well, I, I think the kind of larger frame of all this is that we don't want to get lost in what some people call toxic positivity or kind of up-leveling everything or spiritual bypassing. I'm sure this was let's say in your mind, when you were first hearing these approaches, like, uh-oh, you know, there's a big warning sign that's saying, this is make-believe, you know, this is pretending these issues don't exist or that pain is not there and everything's fine, you know, it's all, it's all good and we're into expansion and we're into the oneness of all things. And so what, that I'm, you know, waking up shaking every morning or something like that. You know, so that's very important to state as the larger context because, not dealing with those constricting habits is not going to work. And so the question is, what do we do with our fear, with our jealousy, with our shame, you know, with, with all of those habitual states? And so that's interesting, you know, because what we want to do is abolish them and destroy them and make them go away and be above it or something like that. And that's not going to work either. So we're basically, and this again comes down to mindfulness, trying to avoid both extremes. One is just getting consumed by something so that it defines us, it overcomes us. And the other extreme is hating it and trying to push it away or denying it. And that place in the middle is mindfulness. And so we want to connect in some way that's different to those very states rather than pretend they're not there. And Sonny Rinpoche has one way of describing that that I always found fun and useful. One part of it is he calls them beautiful monsters. These are your beautiful monsters. And he has developed this practice, which he calls handshake practice, which has all that essential mindfulness teaching. It's like, basically, you're going to hang out with this state. You're going to be his companion. But as we were saying earlier, you are now the adult. You're not that terrified child whose very survival is at stake. It's like you're bringing perspective to the moment. Everything changes. This is here. It is real, it hurts, and it's going to change. 
you're bringing some balance and some wisdom. Like, this is not who I essentially am. This is a changing state born out of conditions. And if I try to push it away, it's not going to help. So let me hang out with it. And there, you know, there are lots of images that are used, like invite, you know, your inner critic to dinner. Don't let them have the run of the house, but you don't have to be so freaked out. Your awareness can handle this. Your awareness is bigger. And, or the very classic Tibetan image, like your thoughts and feelings are like clouds moving through the sky. And so you kind of land more in that I'm the sky rather than I'm that very gloomy looking cloud that's moving through. And he does it through handshake. In the book, you talk about the fact that you recognize that this, this ain't easy. And you talk about learning how to open wider our window of tolerance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's Dan Siegel's formulation, the window of tolerance. And it's so perfect, you know, that, that sense of this is what will actually work. And it's confounding, you know, because it's like, I've got to get rid of this, or I've got to hide this, or this is so shameful, is very near at hand, you know? And so I'm sure I tell the story here because I so often tell it of my early practice. I was 18 years old, as you know, and I was very psychologically unsophisticated. I'd never been in therapy, for example. You know, I went to India before anything. And uh, there I was in my first retreat. So it was really my first very kind of clear introspection. And I was horrified. And I am somewhat famous amongst my very good friends, who are still my very good friends from my first retreat, for marching up to the teacher, S.N. Goenka, and saying, I never used to be an angry person before I started meditating thereby laying blame exactly where I felt it belonged, which was on him. And clearly it was his fault that I was so angry. But of course, I had been hugely angry and I hadn't ever really seen it completely. And I could hear till the end of time, it's okay. This is present. Can you be with it with more awareness and balance and kindness toward yourself? And the answer was always no <laughs> uh, in the beginning. But that's the path, you know, and that's... That's what, in effect, the training was, you know, the education was like, yeah, you can. Maybe just for a moment at first, but try it again, you know, and oh, look at that. That's actually effective. Just to say a few things for my own life to give people permission to uh, struggle with this. I've had a couple experiences recently that were humbling vis-a-vis -vis my meditation or mindfulness practice. One was about 18 months ago, I was given a sleep gummy, a cannabis gummy for sleep. I've historically had not the best relationship to marijuana. My first panic attacks ever were on marijuana. And so I was a little reluctant, but I was told this is a sleep gummy. It's not going to be powerful. And I, so I ate like a third of it. Sure enough, an hour later, I started to panic. And it was the fourth thing that came to my mind to meditate. The first thing was, let me go wake up my wife and go whine to her. But then I didn't want to do that because I didn't want to ruin her sleep or my son's. The second was, do I have any clonopin? And it was the third thing that I finally just started to do walking meditation and was able to just realize if I'm right here awake right now, there's no problem. It's all just the projection. And the other thing I just wanted to say is that along those lines that a couple of days ago, I was having a pretty uncharacteristic bout of depression. I was feeling really low. And 
I just wanted to get rid of the feeling. And it was, again, like the third or fourth thing that popped in my head was to meditate. Anyway, I say all of this just to hopefully add to the discussion in a way that will emphasize for people that we're not saying this is easy. No, thank you. And it's definitely not easy. And it's powerful, especially like when when you talk about panic, you know, what came to my mind was, again, from the Buddhist psychology, panic is also described as like a high energy state, like your energy is too high for the amount of tranquility or concentration present. And so it's not bad. It's not terrible. It's not that you're an awful person, but you're out of balance. So let's see about some balance. And one of the ways they talk about balance is that when a high energy state is trying to move through us, if it's trying to move through a tight, constricted place, it's going to be really jumbled. Whereas if you can create space, like big space somehow, then the energy can move through as intense as it is. And so that tendency we would have to like dampen it down, you know, or close down around it, it's not going to work. But what helps you create space? So that becomes a personal question, like walking, you know, being outside, doing loving kindness for all beings everywhere, listening to sound, listening to music, something, you know, it's very personal, but it's not something we necessarily think of. It's like, okay, what's going to create that kind of openness and help this just move through? Speaking of openness, there are a bunch of other techniques that you recommend for feeling more expansive on the day-to-day. Let's just tick through them and let you hold forth. One of them is gratitude or reflections on good stuff. Yeah. And I think here too, you know, gratitude could have a pretty poor reputation in some ways because I've had a lot of people say to me, well, that's stupid. You know, that's like being grateful for crumbs and you're letting people press you or abuse you in some way and not treat you fairly. And you can say, but I'm grateful for the little bit, you know, that that I've gotten. But I think even the research, I'm told, shows that gratitude does a different thing, that it gives us energy for one thing. And if we feel depleted and just sort of despondent and like we have nothing going, we're not going to have the energy to seek change or to try to make a difference for anyone else. And so it's an energizing quality and it doesn't lead to being self-satisfied or limited. It's, It's out of gratitude that people often want to help someone else like pay it forward in some way, you feel resourced in a different way. And so those practices are also very simple. And I will say also kind of in response to something you implied, like I'm very into techniques. Not everybody is, but I really appreciate methods and techniques because it just gave me a path, a sense of a path. And I could go to bed at night thinking, yeah, I did write down three things I'm grateful for or not, you know, like I blew that one. Let me let me just write down three things now. And so I'm just the kind of person that is supported by structure. And so that would be a very common one, you know, like write down three things by the end of the day that you're grateful for. And it also is a way of establishing some sense of community. Like I've had students at retreats say to me, I found a gratitude buddy and we're going to text each other every day about something that we're grateful for. And this too, it feels like so yucky to a lot of people, it's so sentimental or kind of gooey, but but it's actually powerful. Many of the most powerful things are sentimental. Gooey. And, <laughs> yes, gooey, uh, sadly. 
I'm with you on techniques. So staying on that tip, another technique you recommend is something called yes and. This comes out of the world of improv, where you're about to speak perhaps or perform and you're following somebody. So rather than trying to tear them down or encounter them, you build upon it, even if you don't agree with it. You kind of say, well, this is what's in the room. This is what's present in the air. And there's this. And so it's an interesting way of sometimes reframing a situation. You know, the example that I use is something to do with visiting relatives for the holidays. And you could either place it, you know, as those people were so awful and I had to sit in a room with them for that whole dinner and their views were abhorrent. Or you could say, I got to see my grandma. And it was in the context of all these other people who were kind of nasty. But wow, there was that. Grandma. It's not unrelated to gratitude. No, it's not unrelated to gratitude. It's like, yeah, this is what's in the room. This is what's happening. Another thing on your list here, and this I think will be for some counterintuitive, is pride. Mm -hmm. How is pride helpful? We often think of it in the pejorative. Uh, It is often used that way and could be a very difficult quality, but in the sense that I was using it, which also would come out of both positive psychology and and Buddhist psychology, it has more to do with self-respect. And so that would be, let's say, going back to the question of conscience and morality. If you really look, I think we find that having lots of secrets, a lot of deception, a lot of confusion, complexity in your life, morally or ethically, is a burden. And you do walk into a room kind of more like, what are they going to say? What do they know? What do they think? Whereas you can walk into a room just kind of resting on the dignity of your being, you know, or your efforts and and your caring and you did the best you could. And that's what we would call pride is just having that kind of self-respect. And that's not bad. That's good. Because otherwise, you're always second-guessing relationships. And if you're meditating, you're kind of lost in that world of, but what if I say this and did I lie to the right people? You know, or if they find out that I cheated? or And it's a mess, and, and we don't need that. It's something about the power and the radiance even of one's own mind when it's not so cluttered with all that stuff. And we can live in that way, and we should take pride in that. There are lots of choices, and... It's not easy to figure it all out and remember what we really care about. And it's not easy. And I did the best I could today. You mentioned the scientist, Barbara Fredrickson, who is a researcher. She recommends something called the Pride Portfolio. What is that? It would be just that description. You know, if we do, in fact, as many evolutionary biologists would say, have a negativity bias where we tend to move into a situation and see what's threatening, what is a warning, what could be wrong. It takes a kind of intentionality to see what's positive. And just the same way, if you're thinking about yourself at the end of the day, do you dwell on or even fixate on the mistakes you've made and the things you said wrong or you regret? Or do you leave a little bit of time for what you're grateful for? Or you look at that. I was having a conversation with somebody and I wasn't really paying attention. And then I got there. Her recommendation is an urging to remember that stuff and to actually 
delight in it. You know, it's difficult for us too because it feels like conceit or arrogance. Like, this is my list of good qualities. But it's really just a way of paying attention in a broader fashion because we're not necessarily automatically going to recognize that stuff. And draw the link for me again, and I apologize if I'm being obtuse here, but draw the link again between having this kind of pride, this healthy pride, and being open. Well, Barbara Fredrickson has a theory, which is called the Fredrickson theory of broaden and build, which is that when we cultivate positive states, like loving kindness, she she's a big loving kindness researcher. It's not just to like, be pleased with ourselves or be self-satisfied. It's because it functions in two ways. One is to broaden our perspective. When we're full of fear and it's overwhelming, everything narrows, we shut down, we can't see options, we can't connect. And loving kindness is the opposite energy, right? We're connected, we're open. And the other way it functions is the build part, which is it gives us a sense of inner resource so we don't feel so exhausted and so depleted and deficient and meeting adversity or just enjoying a day. So it's broaden and build both. So those states like loving kindness, like equanimity, like gratitude function to broaden our perspective, open us, and also build that sense of resource. And every time I talk to Barbara, I question this because it seems so spooky to me. But they found that people doing something like loving kindness or any of these cultivation states will actually have their peripheral vision change and get better. And each time I think that's so weird. Is that really true? And every time she says, yeah, that's true. I'm just writing that down because I should put that in my book. You should put it in your book. I hope you get many resources from this conversation and others. Coming up, Sharon Salzberg talks about more of her tips for creating openness, why so many Jewish people of her generation got interested in meditation, the history of the so-called Jew booth, and her contention that no journey is exclusively linear. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier 
To get free shipping and 365-day returns, quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. As we continue to sort of give people practical tools here, one of the lists that you include in your book is actually a list that somebody else made. It's the seven rules for a happy day. Can you tell us who wrote this list and why you like it so much? Her name is Zainab Salbi, and I met her when she was working with the organization she had founded, which was Women for Women International. So she's a really impactful and effective organizer and activist and she also talks about getting burnt out and never feeling she was doing enough and kind of crashing and burning and going to a Zen retreat, even though she knew very little about meditation or retreats, and seeing so much of her own kind of psychology in that retreat. And then through the years, you know, coming to see that there are things she has to put in place to have a more balanced life, because there's no other way to sustain the work. You know, you just can't go on forever and just giving and giving and never getting that sense of, you know, back to Barbara, that sense of inner resource getting replenished and renewed. And so her list includes things like drinking water, being in nature, even if it's just like seeing a tree, you know, and taking a moment and appreciating it. And there's often a lot in people's lists about rest. And I can appreciate that, you know, if I were making a list, it would have to include Remember to rest. I mean, it's a terrible night owl, and I can easily be up till two, three in the morning. And is that good? You know, and so that would be on my list. And meditating every day, even if it's walking, even if it's just washing dishes, just stopping for a few moments at any rate, if not longer. And Barbara also did some research on people doing not formal sitting or walking meditation, but like washing the dishes as their practice and drinking tea and things like that. And found that those things were very impactful as well. Even though for me, I would say that that becomes kind of more like a story I tell myself if I haven't also sat formally every day. It's like, yeah, you can be mindful of whatever you're doing, you know, don't worry about it. And I'm just not going to do it unless I've also sat. So, you know, having some period of sitting is really important for me. Me too. People don't want to hear that, but just an N of two here, two people. I'm not saying this is true for everybody. There are a few other things on her list, and they include eating healthy food, doing something 
with the arts, anything, you know, like playing piano, connecting with family and friends, and then something called making an appointment with your heart, which, as you might imagine, is not the language I would choose. But what do you mean by that? <laughs> what does she, what mean, does by she that? mean by that? Yes. What do you think she means by that? Well, I would naturally think about loving kindness, maybe for oneself, maybe for others, or even just remembering the value. Like, I went to a, a dinner once, which we used to call Jeffersonian dinners. I don't know what they call them now. I think something else, but it, it's like a small dinner party where you don't speak to the person next to you and just kind of chit chat. But there's a question that everyone gets in advance and that everyone dresses that question to the whole table. And the question was something like, talk about a time that compassion was really important for you. And what was intriguing about the question was that it didn't say, when you were compassionate towards someone else or yourself or someone else was compassionate toward you or you witnessed an act of compassion, it just was very general and open. And so people answered it in every way. And so for me, like checking in with my heart would be a question like that so that it wasn't too narrow because it might be that I witnessed something that had nothing to do with me, you know, and it just inspired me and reminded me, oh, look, we can treat other people that way. Uh, look at what it looks like when somebody lights up because somebody thanked them or something like that. Or it might have been that someone was kind to me or I remembered to be kind to someone else. And so I think that's a beautiful thing to ask oneself. It's whatever your most cherished value is, what's happening around that this day or this week, something like that. You mentioned dinner. That reminds me, there was something I wanted to get back to. At the very beginning of this conversation, you talked about the Passover Seder, the annual dinner that Jews have to celebrate Passover. I'm curious what your relationship is to Judaism now. And also, I asked that question to see if I might get you thinking about why so many young Jewish people of your generation went over to India, got interested in meditation, and then built their lives around it. You, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Cornfield, Richard Davidson, Daniel Goldman, Mark Epstein, Sylvia Borstein, Tara Brock, John Kabat-Zinn, you know, all of these like chewy Jewish last names. What, what was that? What was in the water? What was going on? At that time, I think there was a kind of striking movement. And people have different answers, you know, because of course nobody actually knows. But the most common sense answer for many of us, although, you know, Sylvia's, I think, 16 years older than I am. So that's like half a generation anyway. The kind of education or relationship most of us had to Judaism was very ceremonial. Like I grew up in part with my grandparents and they were quite observant, but I didn't understand anything of any depth, you know, and why couldn't we turn on the lights on the Sabbath? Or it was really only the Seder that had any kind of resonance for me. And that was different. It was more in terms of a family. Oh, look, I have a family. And if you wanted to go deeper, it just wasn't, it wasn't done, you know, and many commentaries of uh, Christianity or Judaism have said that one of the contributions that 
contemporary Buddhism or meditation at any rate has made, like mindfulness meditation has made, is that these other religions themselves have kind of gotten revitalized because at the time, the point, aside from like family practice, you know, or like the Seder or, or whatever one might be doing in terms of ritual, the point was sort of more to admire saints gone by, you know, like saints of old. And if you said, I'm going to see how saintly I can be, you know, that was ridiculous. You know, it just wasn't wasn't done. And yet, you know, that's in contrast to, say, my teacher Manindra in India, who once said to me, the Buddha's enlightenment solved the Buddha's problem, now you solve yours. Which also I heard as, you can solve your problem. You can solve the problem of the confusion and the unhappiness that's brought you here to India to begin with. You can do that. But it just didn't exist in Judaism. You know, Joseph will tell the same story of his experience going to a rabbi, and it's just sort of like, what, you know? And so that kind of claiming of liberating spirituality for oneself is sort of at the heart of Buddhism, and it's not conceit or something. It's right. You know, we look at the Buddha because he was a human being, and so we're seeing something but our own potential. But I was never taught that about Rabbi Nachman, you know, of Ukraine, you know, some centuries ago. It was just a time. It was a wave. and. I want some journalist someday to write the story of that wave because I think it's just so interesting. Like the Vietnam War was going on. There was tremendous dissatisfaction in the country. It was tremendous anguish. There were drugs. It was, you know, the Beatles had gone to India. It was just like, it was a very interesting time to leave the country of the U.S. and go to a whole other place and experience a whole other culture and so if you know any journalists who would like to undertake that story, I think, I think it would be a great story. Yeah, I want to be the guy who undertakes that story. I was taking a walk recently with our mutual friend, Danny Goldman, who's been on the show many times, perhaps best known for having written a book called Emotional Intelligence. And he's working on a book where he's going to talk about some of his personal experiences, which, of course, overlap with yours. And he and I were talking about the fact that somebody should write the larger story. And yeah. I want to do that. I just have a long to-do list. Oh, well, let me keep nudging you about that, because I would love it. You know, like Danny, as we call him, <laughs> really kind of brought me to my first retreat. That's what he's best known for in my life, you know, <laughs> aside from emotional intelligence. I mean, I heard him give a talk in New Delhi at this yoga conference, and he mentioned he was going to this retreat at the end of it, and that it was a retreat going. I had just left Burma and had just started teaching in India. And it was a kind of process best known for being very direct. Like it's the how-to stuff of meditation. And I thought, that's it. That's what I'm looking for. And so I followed him along with like 50 other people to Bodhgaya, which is where the retreat was. And where Joseph had already been practicing for about four years. So from Joseph's side, there was like an invasion of all these Western people inspired by Dan Goldman to come to this retreat. And Ramdas was there as a student and having a lot of conversations and, and setting Joseph because he could hear them and he was trying to meditate. It was a tremendous gathering. I love these stories. The one thing you didn't reference when you were talking about why all these Jewish kids got so interested in Buddhism is the cultural tendency toward neuroticism and anxiety. 
Well, that's for sure. But I don't know that there's an exclusive. Like people say to me something rather than they say, that's just Catholic guilt. And I think, Catholic guilt? Like, hmm, you've got guilt too? I don't know. (laughs) You know, I think it's also to look deeper into that because it's an interesting question. Many of us were one generation away from lots of family members being killed in the Holocaust. There was a lot of trauma, which was never spoken about, of course, but there. And all the attendant kind of inheritance of that. There's a lot there to look at. Especially interesting, I think, the more we learn about the reality of generational trauma. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd mentioned her before on the show, but my uh, executive assistant, my colleague, Amy Breckenridge, is an amateur genealogist. And I wanted to be her first client for what I hope will be a genealogy business that she runs. So I asked her to do some looking into my family tree and you know, on the Jewish side, I'm half Jewish, half wasp, sort of Annie Hall mix. And on the Jewish side, there are these kids who emigrated from, I'm talking 16, 17 years old, came over to escape the oppression of the Jews in Russia in like 1906, 1907, that zone, came over by themselves and just tried to make it in America with all of this trauma that wasn't the Holocaust, but it was bad in Russia in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Forced conscription, parents trying to get their kids out of it by mutilating the kids, and the Jews were turning on each other. It was a really bad scene over there. And so they escaped that trauma. And then there's one great-grandfather of mine who came to America, hustled, had a grocery store, did a bunch of things, and then basically became a crook. Uh, and she found a newspaper article of about him having been a, basically a corrupt bail bondsman who took his relatives' homes and put them up as collateral for a con man, and he got busted and killed himself. And, you know, I've referenced the suicide before, but I actually, subsequent to, to having referenced that in a past podcast, I saw this news article about the guy. And so anyway, this kind of fear-based hustling, it gets handed down in the genes. It's not, of course, exclusive to the Jews by any stretch, but it's it's real. And I do think it can get people interested in things like Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a lot there. And uh, some people would say kind of a, a premium on study, on understanding life, and things like that. And coupled with trauma, it's sort of a heady mix. Yeah, a pretty powerful motivator. One thing you say, this gets me back to your book, we're talking now about the beginning of your journey, an 18-year-old who went to India after having endured a lot of trauma as a kid, and we're now chatting several decades later, and it gets me back to a line from your book that was quite resonant for me personally, and the line was, no journey is exclusively linear. I'll just say something personal before I get you to talk about it. I was giving a talk via Zoom, and I mentioned on the talk that the reason why I wasn't there in person is that I had been going through a bout of claustrophobia and panic, and I couldn't get on the plane. I actually had to get off the plane, and I've mentioned that part of the story before on this show. But when I said that to this assembled audience, one of the women in the audience raised her hand and said, well, if you're Mr. Meditation and you're having panic, how am I supposed to feel? And I wish I had no journey is exclusively linear in my back pocket as an answer. You know, of course, life is still going to happen to you no matter how much meditation you do. You're still subject to aging, illness, and death, 
and so is everybody around you. And hopefully meditation will just help you handle all of the mess better. And that that is what's happened with me. I'm way less claustrophobic right now than I was at that moment. So, okay, I've just now hurled a lot of words in your direction, but can you talk a little bit about the journey not being linear? Yeah, and I think I understand the person's comment too, but I think it's one of the ways that we're not really fair to ourselves and not really just to ourselves, because if we were looking at a good friend who has been going through lots of changes and doing so much better, and then they they fall down and they pick themselves up or they let others help them up, maybe they never had that ability to let in help before. Something you know really positive about starting over and, and being able to have some resilience and having an interlude, let's say, of being overwhelmed last an afternoon rather than a year, you know, like all the things that that do happen. If we were looking at a friend, we would say, congratulations, you're doing really well. But with ourselves, that of course we're merciless. In a way, it goes back to the window of tolerance. It's not so much what's happening, but can we have a kind of openness and presence and balance and kindness in the face of what's happening? And maybe not right away, but it comes back sooner than it used to, then it's a process. You know, can we be with what's happening? Can we work it through and maybe learn some things about how to deal with it or whatever? But we have this idea that, you know, we're going to have the breakthrough experience and everything's just going to be smooth from then on. And it doesn't seem to work that way. My friend, my colleague, Sylvia Borstein, came up with this phrase in terms of the Eightfold Path, which is so classical in Buddhist teaching. She called it the Eightfold Dot because we just go round and round and round and round and round. And we go up and we go down, and, and that's what's real. And people often say to me things like, how do I stay mindful all day long at work? Or how do I keep the level of concentration I got in the retreat? And I always say, it's not going to happen. You are going to yell at your kids again, or you're going to forget and stay up till three in the morning, or you're going to, you know, whatever. But you will recover sooner, and you'll maybe recover differently. And you'll treat yourself differently over time. And, you know, of course, you, you tend to have your panic attacks in public. So <laughs> maybe it's a little different for you. But there are lots of things we would rather not admit to, you know. Like, you know, that's a change for some people to reveal vulnerability. And it's sort of like the surround, the environment with which we hold these things. That's what changes. And that changes everything. You know, so if something used to last a long, long time and it lasts much shorter time and it's really painful, that's different than it taking over your month. And I do feel like in the great trajectory of self-compassion, for many of us, the person we are the least kind to is ourselves. Coming up, Sharon talks about her recent experience in the healthcare system, quite harrowing, and how she leaned on her meditation practice in some very difficult moments. And she'll talk about learning the incredibly hard skill of hanging out with somebody else's pain, especially when there is nothing you can do about it. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter and you need that kitty litter to do the job which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control. So your house or your apartment 
or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs. And it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You recently had a pretty horrific experience that I had a chance to talk to you about when I saw you in person a few weeks ago, where you landed in the nether reaches of the American healthcare system in ways that you described to me as being, I think you used the word re-traumatizing. So I wonder if you could describe that experience to the extent that you're comfortable and also how you handled it, because I think that's really relevant to this discussion. Yeah, I ended up in the hospital with a diagnosis of pneumonia, needing oxygen, and through a variety of circumstances, it wasn't a healing experience, to say the least. Being in that facility, it was sort of more a combination of a, like a nursing home or it's a place where people would go who had no other place to go, who were sick, and you know, people raving through the night for drugs. I didn't see a doctor, for example, the, the whole time I was there. And so it was very re-traumatizing. First of all, it was it was really scary experience. The bed I had and the chair I was sitting in each day were uh, wired so that if I got up or I moved wrong, a siren would go off and this voice would scream, don't get up, don't get up, don't get up. And, you know, these places are quite understaffed these days. And, you know, the nurses, the nursing aides were wonderful people and they were really trying, but the system was such that it was just awful, you know, and they were doing the best they could in those circumstances, but it was almost like being restrained. And, you know, I grew up with a mentally ill father. And so that specter of ending up in a an institution was always somewhere in my consciousness. That is the most terrifying thing that could happen for me. And one day when I woke up there and I thought, oh, look where I am, you know, it happened. And then through a variety of means, you know, the great efforts of my doctor in New York and things like that, I was released to go back home. And, you know, my process is really always very similar in that it's being able to sit with the feelings and be with them and, in effect, handshake, not feeling so alone and knowing Sonny Rupche, for example, is doing prayers for me, you know, and 
and that people cared and that I wasn't going to be abandoned in this place. And, you know, later I found that people were plotting to kidnap me and like rent an ambulance and take me out and bring me to a, like a real hospital. And, you know, it's really the same thing. And it's something I always have said to people when they've asked, you know, even once I was interviewed for something once and the question was, how would mindfulness be helpful in a time of total crisis? And I say, well, don't wait. Just don't wait. You know, people say, I don't know, there's nothing happening. I'm fine. It's boring to sit. Why should I do it? And I say, just do it. Do it in the ordinary time. Do it in the easy-ish time. Do it when things seem boring because the day may come when you're going to really need it. And that's what it felt like. Those same old tools. And that's me. You know, there may be people who have different kinds of resources, you know, in terms of psychotherapy or trauma work. And I think that's great. They're not mutually exclusive. No, they're definitely not mutually exclusive. And who knows what else I will experiment with, because what a wonderful thing, you know, that these tools exist. Well, I've said this to you before, but I'm very sorry this happened to you. It sucks uncontrollably. And the suck at baseline for anybody to be stuck, marooned, in a place like that, but given your family history and how traumatized you were as a child when your father had to leave home and be institutionalized and to find yourself in a similar situation, that is, you know, I I don't understand what it's like, but it seems negative at the very least. And that you can bring the tools to bear in extremis is really heartening. Yeah, it's heartening to me too, because they exist. And, uh, It's so easy to think, oh, this is like a hobby or this is a little challenging, but all my friends are doing it or whatever, you know, but it's so much deeper than that. I was having a conversation with my therapist earlier today, and we were talking about how often, and this is eventually going to get us back to openness and your book, often when people go through horrific things, it can sensitize them. I was in an elevator with my therapist today, because that's what we do. We go ride elevators together so that I can get used to being confined. And we end up just talking about a lot of stuff. Turns out he went to high school with Richie Davidson, actually. Oh, really? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And he's a great guy, this therapist. I won't name him just to protect his confidentiality, but I really like him. And one of the things we're talking about today is that actually one of the upsides for me of this resurgence of panic is that I feel a little bit more sensitive to the anxiety of people around me. And then we started talking about how my wife, when she was eight, she had a a benign brain tumor that had to be removed. And it is largely because of that, that she became a physician. And how, what we might call negative or unpleasant or unfortunate or bad things that happen to us can lead to this kind of openness that you talk about in the book and that you've talked about in this conversation. One of the things you talk about in the book, and this might be a good place to close because we've talked a lot about how we relate to ourselves, but the point is, of course, that once our inner weather is bombier, we can have improved comportment vis-a-vis others. And in the book, you talk about learning to be okay and sit with somebody else's pain, Mm -hmm. even if, and especially if, there's nothing you can do about it. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you agree with this connection I'm making here? Does this all make sense? Am I being cogent? I do see it. I mean, sometimes we, I think, interpret compassion as fixing something, you know, being able to fix a person or a situation. And I don't see it that way, really. 
anymore. But being with and seeing what emerges out of that being with, I think, is more in the nature of compassion. Because it's also not hierarchical, like I've got it all together and I'm going to bestow this kindness on you way down there. You know, it's like, okay, here we are. And so the need to fix it, the need to be the savior would be a kind of narrowness. You know, it's like being in a, a role definition and fixation and also shielding yourself from being equal in that situation. Just sort of more like I'm the fixer in contrast to here we are together. Let's see what happens. And like, I had not known that about your wife. And yet if we really knew everyone's story, I think it would be, it would be really powerful because no one is invulnerable really. So there's that. And I think there's just the sense of connection is opening. And the story that I tell in the book is about being in New York. I was teaching all day and I was supposed to have dinner with a friend further uptown. So I got into a taxi and then she wrote me and said, you know, I'm not feeling very well. Maybe we should call it off. And so I said to the taxi driver, we're not going uptown anymore. We're going downtown. Let's go downtown, which is where I lived. And I wrote something to my friend, like, you know, there are really big germs going on around. I'm sorry, you're not feeling well. And she wrote back and said, oh, it's not physical. I just had a really hard day and I don't want to burden you with my suffering. And I wrote back and I said, I'm a Buddhist. I'm not afraid of sitting with someone in suffering. So she said, okay, come. So then I said to the cab driver rather dramatically, turn around. <laughs> We're going uptown after all, which I'd never done before. <laughs> you know, so we we narrow and fixate when we feel we have to be the savior. And we also narrow and fixate when we feel I've got to hide this. You know, this is too shameful to to reveal or no one can tolerate this. You know, no one could bear this. So from both sides, you know, it would be just falling into that habit and openness would look like just a kind of sheer connection. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to talk to you, always. And as I said, congratulations on the new book. Speaking of which, before I let you go, can you just remind everybody of the name of your new book, where they can get it, any other resources you've put out there that might be supporting that people could be interested in? Please plug. Okay. Actually, I, I want to say I like this book. I like it a lot. You know, sometimes when I think it's my 12th book, I think, well, yeah. But I feel like one thing I did in this book was in theater, we would say I broke the fourth wall. I felt like I was addressing people very directly in a different way. It's called Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom, published by Flatiron. And I was uh, moved by seeing the different sources and psychology and so on that have really been nourishing my understanding. Yeah, so the, the book should be available everywhere. As I said, congratulations. You've made many, many, many contributions to improving the human situation. And here we go with another one. So thank you, Sharon Salzberg. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Sharon Salzberg. Thank you as well to you for listening. If you've got a moment, go give us a rating or a review. That stuff really helps. And finally, thank you to everybody who works so hard on this show. We've got an incredible team. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Cashmere, Justine Davey, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. Our supervising producer is Marissa Schneiderman, and Kimmy Regler is our managing producer. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. And Nick Thorburn of one of my favorite bands, Islands, wrote our theme. Thank you, Nick. 
We'll see you all on Wednesday for a brand new episode. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.